Hi, I'm Valerie Steele, Director and Chief Curator of the Museum at FIT, the most fashionable museum in New York City. Welcome to our Fashion Culture podcast series, featuring lectures and conversations about fashion. If you like what you hear, please share your thoughts on social media using the hashtag #FashionCulture. When I started uh, speaking to Stephen about this talk, I asked him not just to talk about his work with Suzanne, which of course is really fascinating, but really go all the way back in time to the beginning of his career. In 1400, um, yeah. <laughs> The story was that I arrived by chance almost at St. Martin's School of Art, as it was called then, and I had been to a very traditional boys' boarding school, and I couldn't sew. And uh, my tailoring tutor had said to me after about six months, unless you get some extra help, you're going to fail the first year. And he was a chap called Peter Crown who, wrote, who ran a, a couture house called La Chasse, which was a very grand old-fashioned couture house in London. And I became a tailoring intern there. However, the tailors, I don't know, I didn't get on with them very well. They're a bit sort of grumpy. Sorry if there are any tailors in the audience. But um, then next to the tailoring workroom was a millinery workroom, and they had a swing door on the front of it. And there were a couple of reasons that millinery interested me. Um, first of all, they always seem to be having a good time. They seem to work hard and play hard. And I also noticed there was a giant pot of glue on the table. And I thought, thank heavens, hats aren't sewn together. Um, they're just all stuck together. And little did I know, there's much more hand, hand sewing in a hat, probably, than in a, in a garment. So I asked to be transferred from one department to another. <clears throat> and I, I uh, went to see Mr. Crown, and he said, well, we have to speak to the head of the workroom. This extraordinary lady called Shirley Hex, who, I mean, I transferred there, and, and after that she went on to teach um, Philip Tracy and Burnstock and Spears and many, many other people. Um, and she said, we had a meeting, and she said, well, how can I take him on if he's never made a hat? I don't know if he's going to be any good or not. So um, I went back to my parents' house, and um, I made this construction. And this was made from a cereal packet underneath. And it was an old blouse of my sister's, which I chopped up and stuck on with, you know, simple glue. And then these irises on the front... There's this weird thing in the, I think in the 60s in England, uh, I don't know if it happened in America in the same way, that if you bought petrol, uh, sorry, gas at a gas station, they would give you plastic flowers. <laughs> it's like this weird thing. <laughs> Trust it to be in England like that. So anyway, my mother, of course, had some of those loving, lovingly preserved in the greenhouse. Um, so I, I got them and sprayed them with silver spray paint and somehow sewed them on the front or stapled them or something. And uh, my Shirley uh, and Peter were amazed on the Monday morning that actually I'd done something like this and thought the flowers were all very modern, you see. I didn't realize that hats on, uh, flowers on hats were supposed to be in silk. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I'd always... Hats had been part of my visual language, I suppose you could say. I mean, I wore a, a cap to school and I wore a boater to when, when I was o older as well. And, you know, my... Mother came from the generation that if you didn't wear a hat into town, they would have thought you were mad. So, but um, hats were not something that I'd re ever really considered. So I was quite a late starter. And this was the mid seventies, nineteen seventy-six. When this you was seventy-six. Yeah, um, the era of punk. The background of why punk happened, because it was such a sort of a depressing time, um, and you know. 
yes, there was punk going on, but I was sort of interested in this curious, rarefied, archaic, in a funny way, discipline of making hats. Um, I mean, I think it, it was largely because I was terrified of making clothes, even though I did make clothes and, funny enough, sold them in Suzanne's first shop here. Oh. Fascinating. And I also saw that your interest in fashion, I, I read that you were considering a few different artistic disciplines, but it was an exhibition at the V&A that triggered your love for fashion or really cement, cemented that. Yeah. In England, in Britain, what you do is uh, when you leave school, before you go to art college, you do a thing called a foundation course, which is basically ceramics, interior design, fashion, a, a little bit of a general art course to enable you to make the decision about what you want to do. And I visited the V&A and I saw this extraordinary jacket, um, which was the most beautiful thing I'd ever seen. And I thought it was strange. I mean, I knew the possibilities of clothes a little bit, but I didn't know the possibilities of construction. And this was actually, I found out in later years, I didn't even know then, um, was the Charles James jacket, the padded satin jacket, which is now in the V&A. Um, and I realized that it looked like this sort of soft sculpture. And that's sort of basically what got me into the idea of fashion and, and appearance. Fantastic. Oh. Steve Strange. Steve Strange, quite a jump forward. Basically, when I left, co left college, um, well, funnily enough, I mean, I had two extra extracurricular activities when I was at college because I was doing hats. And I was also in a band as well called Pink Parts, and, uh, <laughs> and, uh, which is not very often publicized, but um, I've decided to uh, confess all at last. And really, I didn't know. I, I thought I wasn't going to be a fashion designer, but was I going to be a singer or, or a milliner? So I decided to sort of be a milliner, but I... I went to Paris to try and get a job. I couldn't get a job over there. Came back to London. Um, I became a truck driver for a while and actually started going to the Blitz Club and met Steve, and who was my first ever paying customer. And he bought my first hat. I mean, apart from my mother, she, of course, um, as everybody who's a fashion student, you know, it's your mum who buys your first outfit. Um, and uh, Steve spent. 75 pounds on this hat, which it was a fortune, and this was 1980. I mean, it was really quite a lot of money. Through him, um, I got my first shop. Um, he, he had a day job, too, working at this shop called PX. And the basement was um, unused, and they just moved in there, and they, he arranged for me to have a little shop there. And it was about the size of this table. And... Uh, <laughs> It was actually um, Andrew Logan and Dougie Fields and uh, a lady called Molly Parkin who did the guest list um, for the opening of the shop. And they invited about 500 people. And this was going to be watered by a case of cheap white wine, one case of cheap white wine that my parents had bought me because they thought there were going to be about 15 people. Um, and who designed the interior of your shop? I sort of did it, really. It was lots of different things, but I, I definitely loved Casanova at that time. Uh, basically, the walls were so damp, which is why we had draped cotton over the front of it, and we had huge bowls of potpourri in those days to conceal the smell, too. Ah, yeah. fascinating. <laughs> it's all for a reason. You know, it's never arbitrary. Um, and how long were you in your original shop for? Um, about, 
about a year, and then I moved into a little workroom in Wardour Street, and then Lexington Street, and then I ended up in the place that I am now about 20 years ago, which is a shop in Covent Garden, just along down the road from the Blitz. From the Blitz, perfect. Bizarrely enough. Oh, and Zandra. And we had many mutual friends like Brian Eno and Derek Jarman, Andrew Logan, and I, did, I worked for a few seasons with her, and still do hats for her private clients, because mm -hmm. she still does work. And I know some of your early work, what did you call it, Space Age Tutor? Is that what you... Space Age Tutor. Yeah, 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 so kind of working on <laughs> in that vein. How long did you design fashion? Well, I've been doing women's fashion at college, and in fact, um, because the, millen the my millinery was an extracurricular activity, um, it wasn't actually considered part of the college course, and I have to say my college tried to fail me on that. I didn't particularly get on with my tutors, unlike John, who was their darling. Um, and so, but actually I was doing women's fashion. I showed fashion in my final degree collection. Um, and I carried on for about two or three years, largely working with the idea of pleats. And one of the jobs that I, when I went to Paris, when I first left college, I went, actually went for a job at Madame Grey. Um, she was still alive then and still working. And I went to her salon in the Place Vendôme. And actually it was quite funny because um, I walked into the salon and I saw her at the distance and this incredibly icy secretary said, yes, sir, can I help you? And I said, I have an appointment as a studio assistant for Madame Gray. And, and then there was some sort of, she went away and came back and she said, no, I think you must be mistaken. You don't have an appointment here. Ooh. So um, I still love pleats and I still love Madame Gray, even though I was rejected. <laughs> And I know that collaborations, of course, are a huge part of your work and you consider it a conversation with designers. Can you talk a little bit more about that process with some of your favorite designers and the most interesting to work with? I mean, they're all interesting to work with. It's always a challenge. There's never really a formula. Um, and sometimes people say to, say to me, you know, how on earth can you do something for Ray Kubo and then work with John and then work with Mark? Um, but it's almost like if you were going into a room and there was a party or meeting a group of people, actually every conversation you'd have with everybody is, is slightly different because mm -hmm. that's how people communicate with each other. So if I'm having a conversation with Ray, I know what she's about and I think of what she might like or what she might not like. Um, and normally if we've been designing with Ray, I always have to think what she would not like because she sees hats as being the spice in her collection that she doesn't really know about. That's until she doesn't like them, by the way. <laughs> um, um, and then the conversation I would have with John is, you know, he's a real storyteller, so you'd have a different conversation with him. So that's how I, I work with multiple clients. And it's fascinating. I mean, sure, if you're a makeup artist or a hairdresser, you have to experience the designer but that's really quite at the last moment. But I really have to get into their heads as to see what makes them tick. Because it's never to make, to, to make a successful hat, it's never really to make that hat to put on with that outfit. It's to take the ideology or the concept or the feeling of that se season and then reinterpret it into a hat, which is completely different mm -hmm. to making a hat which coordinates with the outfit. I mean, sometimes it's like that. Sometimes you don't have to reinvent the wheel, but it's much more interesting to give it a go. Mm -hmm. uh, do we have time for Q&A? Okay, great.
Um, I hope I'm not making a mistake, but didn't you do the work that was in China through the looking glass? Oh, yes, I did do. Incredible. I yes. must congratulate you. It was Thank phenomenal. You. Thank you. Um, it was an amazing honor to be asked to do it and um, a, a challenge, and it completely freaked me out too. Um, Andrew Bolton, who I've known for quite a long time, um, had asked me a, a, about a year ago, would I like to be involved? Um, and we only eventually decided on my involvement um, in January, and everything had to be ready for the middle of April. That was to do research, drawings, make them, you know, all of that. Um, and, you know, everybody at the Met had been working on this and developing the ideas for, I don't know, two years or something. And then I had to come along and, uh, and do what I thought was a, 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 a very amateur research. And, and I, I said to Andrew, you know, I just, I, I can't believe it. we were going to have the Chinese community in particular coming around looking at these things. And I've done these like terrible versions of them. I'm as guilty as the um, Westerners from previous centuries plagiarizing uh, Chinese and, uh, and Asian culture. Um, and he said, but that's exactly what it is. It's all about the misunderstanding and the beauty in the misunderstanding as well. So then I, I quite relaxed. Um, but um, I had a great team working with me and it was amazing to install it. And also extraordinary to meet the curators who were bringing those clothes in from around the world. You know the um, sort of the ancient Chinese garments, um, they're always put on a wooden frame. And one of the curators said, but it's such a, who was from um, the Imperial Palace in, in Beijing, he said, it's such a shame they have to be displayed like that. He said, but actually they were all about movement. And he moved the hem, this was in the conservation area, he moved the hem in ripples. And he said, that's how the, the water, that's how um, the, the silk is supposed to be seen in movement. He said, you have to remember that there was very, very little lighting. So anything that shone was even more magical than it is now. So anyway, but thanks. Uh, thank you so much, first of all, for your contribution to fashion um, and the accessory um, industry. My name is Jamie Pesaveno, and I'm uh, an alumni from FIT. I studied millinery here under Miss Ann Albrizio. And, yeah. and, but my, 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 main, my question is, um, Stephen, do you prefer working hands-on directly with your material, or are you more of a sketcher and then go and uh, design your product? Um, good question. Because, in fact, so many milliners arrive to be millinery, milliners um, because they prefer to work in 3D rather than 2D. Um, there's very much something about sculpting directly on a stand. I, in fact, draw all the time. I mean, I'm, I wasn't a natural drawer either. I was very much taught how to draw. But um, for me, uh, you know, hats have always been about communication and working internationally. So I've always had to be able to post my designs, fax my designs, email my designs um, to clients all around the world. So I draw. Um, in fact, t 
to, to make it even less sort of sexy, yesterday I was working out the collect my collection on an Excel file, so. <laughs> but yeah, I mean both. It's, you know, that you have to be able to transfer between 2D and 3D very, very easily, actually. Would you share something of how you solved the oversized boaters for Tom Brown's collection? Um, how I shared, the, how I solved the, the problem, the, the head fitting was much too big. Yeah, um, what we actually did is we passed threads from one side to the other in the color of the girl's hair and from front to back. So they were actually sort of suspended. They went touching the side of the head. And unbeknown to me, that's what gave them their fantastic look because there was a little bit of shadow between the edge of the hat and their face, which gave the whole sort of beauty look. I mean, that happened by chance, but that's how I worked it anyway. I was wondering, what's one of your most memorable Suzanne Barch parties? Most memorable Suzanne Barch parties. Oh God, I can't remember them. That's why they were memorable. I think the first show of um, New London in New York, that was amazing. Actually, that, I think the one that I was, it was in the second show that she did. Uh, I mean, it was incredible. Uh, everybody, everybody within the fashion business of the world was there. It was like, going to a Chanel show, but with a billion gorgeous people as well. And I don't know, I just got smashed. <laughs> and danced on top of glitter boxes and, and did all of that and had a fantastic time with a whole group of friends. And that was um, you know, an amazing time. But also the love balls were extraordinary. When, um, you know, the house of Mughla, my God, incredible. Um, and of course, uh, in a, in a way, Suzanne discovered RuPaul, but seeing him there being like a go-go boy, it was, in, you know, six foot five, without, without heels. <laughs> so we, we know you des design and do a lot for fashion shows and museum shows. Do you do a lot for, like, just private sales, private people? I mean, these days, I don't see many, even very fashionable people wearing hats, except in the winter when you just trying to keep warm, except for maybe here today, but... <laughs> Lovely ladies. Yeah, I mean, that's my main business is selling hats for real people. And I make hats made to measure from my shop in London. And, and I sell a wholesale collection around the world. And no, I mean, people don't wear hats every day, but yeah, people wear hats in New York in January. You know, everybody's wearing a hat. Your head would fall off if you didn't. Um, and similarly, in hot climates, like in Australia, everybody wears a hat there because it's so hot and so sunny, and you know the ozone layer over Australia is particularly thin, so people will have to wear hats there. I mean, people wear hats for a reason, and there's always a certain logic to millinery, and, and of course to fashion. I mean, maybe the purpose is because you're going to a wedding, and you, or you're going to a bar mitzvah, and you have to be correctly dressed. Um, and, for example, next week I'm going to Melbourne to the horse races there. And it's 30,000 people a day. Half of them are women. And it goes on for seven days. So that's a lot of hats. And the same thing here at the Kentucky Derby, you know. Okay. I, I, sure, people don't wear hats every day like they had to in, up until the Second World War. 
but actually I think it's quite good that we don't have those social and clothing conventions where our grandparents had to wear hats for propriety's sake. Um, I just wanted to ask, after hearing your organic process to becoming a milliner, second to FIT, where else would you suggest for the education of millinery? Education in millinery? Um, well, London, um, there's uh, some good courses there at Kensington and Chelsea College. Um, there's a very good millinery course there. Um, I know they teach them millinery at the bunker in Tokyo as well. Um, what was the one in Tokyo? Bunker, B-U-N-K-A, um, which is their big fashion college there. They have millinery courses there. But yeah, I think you can learn a certain amount from your tutor, but it's what you teach yourself is the most important. Because um, people always say, what's the secret to fashion design? The secret to fashion design is being true to yourself and putting yourself into whatever you create. Uh, you have nothing more than that. And that also is the thing which is most poignant and most exciting for everybody else. Thank you. Thank you so much, Stephen.